Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we're going to be talking about recent releases by Interpol, Death Cab for Cutie, Mitski, and Boxing. And uh, my sparring partner in this week's episode is our old friend Ian Cohen, who of course you know from many, many outlets including Pitchfork, Stereo Gum, Spin, and uh, the Celebration Rock Podcast. He's been on this show many times. We refer to him as our Alec Baldwin. We always like to have Ian on the show. It's always fun to talk about music with him. And we dug into these records. You know, we have two legacy bands, and we have two sort of up-and-coming indie acts. And uh, it was fun to get into it with Ian. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week, and it is our friends at Indeed. When you're hiring, you don't want to waste time sorting through dozens of irrelevant resumes. You want an efficient way to get to a short list of qualified candidates. That's why you need Indeed.com. Post a job in minutes. Set up screener questions based on your job requirements. Then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. Discover why 3 million businesses are using Indeed for hiring. Post a job today at Indeed.com slash hire. Search for greatness. Search Indeed. Yes, so maybe you are you know, a very well-respected music editor and you're looking for a new job because you've just left your longtime place of employment. You know, or maybe you're looking for an editor of some sort. We're hiring a DJ here at the radio station. We're going to use yeah. Indeed. Maybe, uh, maybe you want a new uh, podcast host for your favorite <laughs> or music producer. Po- <laughs> or producer, because you're sick of the person you have. You want to hire somebody else. This is the place you want to go. So again, when it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You don't need help getting to your shortlist of qualified candidates fast. With Indeed, post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, and zero in on the qualified candidates. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free when you sign up at Indeed.com. New users can try for free when you sign up at Indeed.com. Okay, so yeah, so me and Ian Cohen, we talked about latest records from Interpol, from Death Cat for Cutie, Mitski, and Foxing. Uh, we gave our yays or nays on all of those albums, kind of dug into it. And uh, yeah, it was a great, really great conversation. So but without further ado, here is me and Ian Cohen talking about a lot of great recent rock records on the Celebration Rock Podcast. So Ian, it's uh, always a pleasure to have you on here talking about... Uh, I guess four big records here, four big rock records. I always feel like it's a, a special thing when there's like four notable rock records in the space of a couple of weeks. It always feels like a gift. Well, I mean, it it depends on what you want to call big. I mean, I think they're ones that are, I don't know, important and, uh, you know, important in a certain way, but big is relative. <laughs> well, you know, big in our world. We're going to say big in our world. We don't, we don't care there about the go. outside world. Oh, there we go. Uh, well, let's cool. get into it. Let's talk about Marauder, the latest record by Interpol. This came out on Friday, August 24th, and I mm-hmm. reviewed this record for uprocks.com. I actually wrote a profile of the band. I interviewed all three band members talking about the record, and I like this record. I have to say that uh, I'm somewhat of a sucker for late-period Interpol records, <laughs> okay, let, let, let's walk through this. Okay, so Interpol, it's their first record in, in, in four years since 2014's El Pintor. They worked with Dave mm-hmm. Friedman, a very notable indie rock producer, most famous probably for working with the Flaming Lips, uh, but he's worked with a number of other bands. Uh, this record was recorded mostly live to tape. I know when I interviewed the band members, they talked about how raw they felt the record sounded. They appreciated the, I guess, lack of studio slickness compared to other Interpol records. Um, the single off this record uh, is called The Rover, and I thought it was one of the best singles that they've put out, certainly this decade, I think <laughs> in a very long time, really good song. Uh, the, you know, the lyrics, are, of, of course, are ridiculous, and I'm sure we'll get into you know, some of our favorite Paul Banks quotes from this record. Uh, but you know, <laughs> when I was writing about this record, I, I found myself appreciating Interpol 
as survivors. You know, because, you know, there's been a lot of talk in Mm -hmm. recent years about that early 2000s class of New York City bands. And, of course, that's headlined by The Strokes. Um, But a lot of those bands now are in a state of flux. You know, The Strokes certainly are in that uh, in that realm. You know, TV on the radio is active, but it's unclear exactly where they're at right now. Yeah, 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 as that's true of. Um, The National, I guess, are technically of this generation, although I don't really put them in that class. They seem nah. like they're more like mid or late. Um, Interpol to me, in a way, they feel like the most enduring band of, of that class. And I, and I just found myself sort of appreciating their Interpolness on this record. I, I, the comparison I made in my story <laughs> was talking about how, like when you two put out all that you can't leave behind, I, I feel like that was them sort of saying, okay, this is who we are. We're going to kind of sound like ourselves. We're not really interested in, you know, walking out of lemons anymore or trying to change up our image. Uh, we are who we are, and this is what it's going to be. And I feel like that's what Interpol did on this record. And if you go into this record expecting something different, you're going to be disappointed. But if you go in liking Interpol for what they do, they're very sort of narrow lane. I think it's a good record. I'm going to, mm-hmm. I, I like this record. And I think that you feel differently, right? You're not as big on this album. <laughs> I mean, I, I for one, also appreciate um, the Interpolness of Interpol. And you know, the thing about that is, if you go back to, you know, I also wrote about this record. And when you look back at like their other records when they went back to Matador, uh, you know, one was called Interpol, like self-titled, and the other was called El Pintor, which is like an anagram or whatever, a, a rearrangement, whatever that is. Of inter- it's like they're both self-titled. And I think those albums both did Interpol things. I think it's kind of impossible for Interpol to not do Interpol <laughs> on this rep. But the thing is about on this record, like all the things that um, make it, I guess, a more interesting record to talk about compared to um, the previous ones. Like I, you know, look, I mean, Dave Fridman, I mean, even beyond the flaming lips, I mean, you know, Tame Paula, MGMT, uh, even the, he did a couple records with Thursday that were awesome. But I think his, and you think that would be a kind of a strength on strength thing because he gets such a heavy, like, um, you know, such low end. And on this record, it just sounds like they're stuffed in a trunk. I think it's such a it, it doesn't have that same sort of, um, you know, because like when you two made all that, you can't believe behind it has that very grandiose, you know, Bono saving the world after 9-11 sort of thing, which is actually interesting because like Interpol itself was kind of a very definitive like you know, post 9-11 band, they had this like sense of like New York exceptionalism grandeur or whatever. I mean, like you listen to that record and it's, you know, turn on the bright lights, even antics to a degree. It's still like being, you know, like here, like hearing Interpol for the first time, having those, like, I mean, I was live, I, I, I live in Philadelphia. I'd be in New York a lot in the early two thousands and just being young, full of shit, uh, completely having an inflated, sense of self um and probably also doing a lot of drugs um that's the <laughs> interpol i get and it there's just this sense of uh, this this grandiosity uh to interpol that is enhanced by their ridiculousness i think um and i just don't get that from this record this seems like interpol trying to make like a garage band like to me it sounds like if they looked and if they kind of looked like the strokes or presented like the strokes like this is what it would be which um, you know, and, and that kind of takes away the entire point of Interpol to me. Um, I, the lyrics are still very Paul Banksy and, you know, he's always <laughs> been way more funny than he's been given credit for. I think there's a self-awareness to his songwriting that, uh, is often overlooked and, you know, people just kind of see him as this kind of Anthony Kiedis character where you can just kind of make fun of him just by quoting him. But, um, I, I just don't get the same sense of like, um, that grandeur, you know, that you get from Interpol. It just seems like a good, it, it's like a not bad record, but that doesn't quite mean it's great. You know, it's the least bad of the recent Interpol records. You know, those records that, uh, you know, that thing that you were talking about, sort of the lack of, of grandeur on the new record, which, you know, is very much a part of Turn on the Bright Lights when people talk about that record, how big it sounds and how lush it is. Um, I kind of like the grittiness of the last two albums. They sound like a band that 
kind of went back to basics. It's like three guys playing in a room. You hear them playing off of each other. I found myself really appreciating just Interpol as a live band, which I think has been something that has probably kept them alive. Because as much as they're regarded as being this fashion plate rock group mm-hmm. that was very much, you know, like on magazine covers and, and, and seems to be sort of the epitome of, you know, New York City trendiness in the early 2000s. I think the reason why they've survived, partly anyway, is that they they seem like they're a really good live band. They, you know, they're a good touring band. And getting that in, element into the records, I think, uh, is, is appealing to me. It's something I really responded to listening to Marauder. Um, I want to just get back to Paul Banks for a moment. I don't know, like, do you have a favorite lyric on this record? I, I was just thinking of that song, The Rover, where he talks about, I've been holding these pyros till they could fly, open up and, and enlighten again, enjoy the skyline. It's an incremental... Oh, the word got cut off there. But, you know, that's, uh, that's one thing in there. Uh, I have no idea what the hell he's talking about in that lyric. It, he he kind of has like a Yoda like cadence to a lot of his sentences where he kind of starts in the middle of the sentence and then puts it in the beginning and then the end. Uh, But uh, yeah, like you say, there is something maybe self-aware about that at at some point. Like he knows he's speaking sort of interpolese and maybe, you know, he knows people are going to expect that kind of thing. Were there any lyrics for you that stood out on the record in that regard? Well, from the rover, um, I can keep you an artwork, the fluid kind, which, like, you know, is exactly the kind of thing you're talking about with that, like, Paul Banksian syntax, where it's, like, if you glance at it from a distance, it's, you know, it's it's got that same sense of, like, sinister, like, druggy, sexy, like, you know, New York City thing to it. And then when you, like, focus really, really close, it's just the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard. And I mean, that's like the case with all, like, especially like obstacle two or whatever, but, um, <laughs> right. the, 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 I can't recall the exact song that it comes from, but like, there's one line where I believe he says like rock and roll bitch, I'm into it, <laughs> which I mean, like you want to talk about like Paul, like Paul Banks and Interpol just really owning the not get, like we are in our own orbit. We don't give a shit anymore. Like, this is what we do. And I think that is the one thing that I picked up on on this record that made me really, really, really want to like it as much as you do. Because I think um, when when Meet Me in the Bathroom came out, like, I have no idea what a 20, some, someone currently in their early 20s thinks of it. But I think a lot of people our age and maybe the people who listen to this show, uh, that book really appealed to us, not just because it reminds us of our earlier days or whatever or just you know experiencing these bands for the first time but interpol their like their image and their whole sort of being is such at odds with what one would consider to be you know the indie sort of zeitgeist right now um i mean you think about like you read those stories and you think like man these bands carlos d would not last a second today man (laughs) you just imagine if like and also, I think the idea of like these guys getting back to basics, I don't think there ever really was a basics. I, I, I did an oral history with the band, including Carlos D back in 2012 for the 10 year Bright Lights um, reissue. And it's like they had these big grandiose plans, like from the get go, like from the start. It was like them in a room, like, like thinking about like how to be the most like, audacious like band in New York possible. Right. Um, you know, wearing suits instead of that, you know, the kind of strokes thing that was going on. Um, they took themselves very seriously. And the idea of them like going back, like to, it, Interpol, to me, there is no basics. <laughs> you know, they were always this. It was like whenever you would hear like a Smash Kins record, Billy Corgan said, yeah, we're going to get back to basics. Like, no, that was never the case. You guys were always tryhards and you guys were always like going for the most ridiculous stuff possible. And so... It, this record actually makes me somewhat nostalgic, not for Bright Lights, but for Our Love to Admire, because uh, that was really them, in my estimation, self-actualizing as this, like, uh, I don't know, like more like a Killers or Duran Duran, like sort of fashion plate, big time, major label band. Right. And uh, like, you know, No I and Threesome, the Heinrich Maneuver, like all these songs that are just like, objectively ridiculous and i but the thing is at that time i don't know if they were quite aware i don't think they had quite the ownership of that so 
it necessarily became time to turn on them. You well, know? and and you hit on this. I think part of the appeal of that generation, when people look back on it, is that the bands that, that back then had a, a very sort of distinct, they had distinct personas that came yeah. with, you know, how they looked, how they sounded, you know. The Strokes, you know, they didn't wear suits, but they wore leather jackets. They wore, like, the jeans and, like, the cool vintage T-shirts. Like, they had their own costume, too. And, like, the Yeah, 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 had a costume. And the Interpol mm-hmm. had a costume. And they all had an aesthetic. And, you know, even great bands now, you know, it's just people walking in off the street and going on stage. Like, the, the visual component with bands now is not what it was at that time. It seems like there's always a pendulum swing with that sort of thing where, mm-hmm. you know, you go through a period where, like in the 90s, you had grunge bands, and, and I guess you could argue that they wore a costume too, but it was definitely about dressing down. And then mm-hmm. there seemed to be this thing about, like, no, it's cool to dress up. It's cool to, again, have this sort of visual aesthetic to what you're doing. And mm-hmm. and then that kind of fell out of favor uh, after mm-hmm. those bands sort of came and went. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, with Marauder, I guess I just appreciate that the thing that you could criticize Interpol for, which is the fact that they don't change and that they're very sort of narrow sonically, to mm-hmm. me is like a big part of their appeal. Like they do something that I feel like is very specific to them. And when I want that very specific thing, I know I can listen to Interpol and still get it. And I think they still deliver it pretty well. Like I don't think Marauder is the second coming of Turn on the Bright Lights, but I think it's like a pretty good late period Interpol record. Um, certainly much better than I was expecting. This one and, yeah. and El Pintor both. I, I enjoyed both of these records. Uh, so I'm glad yeah, they're still doing it. I mean, it, it. I'm they exist. Like, that's the thing. It's like, I won't begrudge them for existing. If they give me like two or three songs that give me that Interpol buzz, you know, per record, like this one does. You know what? Keep going, man. Like, I just, <laughs> I love the fact that they could possibly, like, at any festival where there's going to be a bunch of bands that I probably don't give a shit about, like, <laughs> I appreciate that Interpol is still around to appeal to the olds, you know? Right, right. Or or to younger people that are looking yeah. for their version of, like, The Cure or uh, Depeche Mode. I mean, because the Interpol yeah. is aging into that now, into, like the legacy band that has a couple of songs that everyone who's into indie rock knows. So if you are at like Riot Fest or something and Interpol's there, it's like, oh, I'm kind of drunk. I'm going to go see Interpol and I'll remember Obstacle (laughs) 1 or whatever. Um, Well, let's go to uh, another legacy band that recently put out uh, a new record and that is Death Cab for Cutie. Their new record is called Thank You for Today. And... um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this conversation with a confession on my part. Um, I have never cared about this band at all, and that's not a value judgment one way or the other. I've listened to their records. I've you know read about them. You know, I know people like you who high, hold them in fairly high regard. Um, but to me, whenever I've listened to their records, they've always seemed like a nice indie rock band, but nothing really more than that. Um, I think I spent a lot of time in bars in northeastern Wisconsin in the early 2000s instead of watching the OC. So that may have also (laughs) affected how I feel here. I I feel like I maybe missed the zeitgeist with this band a little bit. Uh, So I'm going to defer to you here. I want you to make the case for Death Cab for Cutie and also talk about this this new record. And I'll withhold my opinion on it until you have your say. All right. Well, you know, the thing about um, just about everything that you say that's um, that uh, about like why this new Interpol record appeals to you, <laughs> um, it, it, that's kind of the case for me with Death Cab. And, you know, as these two records had a pretty similar um, album cycle, you know, they they've they've kind of they've come out like a week apart from each other, dropped singles at pretty, uh, you know, similar times um, and also fairly not, I mean, I think Death Cab's like the bigger band or whatever, but like it, it occurred to me that, um, and I had seen the Pixies and Weezer play together um, recently, and it dawned on me that like these two bands, like Death Cab and Interpol, could probably tour together at some point. Oh, absolutely. Um, as, as at, even though like they have, as you described, this aesthetic, it could not be more different. Um, you know, and, and the thing is, like Interpol is also on the OC, I'm pretty sure. But, <laughs> oh, I'm sure you know, they were. 
they're, they're, I mean, they're not quite as like linked to that era as Death Cab is. Now, Death Cab, um, I will admit fully that if I was not in my early, tw- like late, like college, college years when those Death Cab albums were new, you know what? I might not be as into them as I am now. On the other hand, though, like you can't account for this. And when you look back at like Death Cab, I think the thing that really contrasts with Interpol is that they really change from record to record. Like in the beginning, um, and I think you you know recently uh, something about airplanes turned twenty. You know they started out as a band that could be seen as attached to the Built to Spill, Modest Mouse, Pacific Northwest, almost slowcore sort of sound. Um, you know, if, if it's an album that could come out today and still be and still be like resonant, it's not Ben Gibbard hadn't quite evolved into, you know, the style of lyricism he's known for now. Um, and then like, which I think we're going to talk about this record later in this episode. But that to me just is an it's the kind of record I love so much where it's a band that has this kind of small sort of you know, they're just kind of chugging along aesthetic. They do what they do and they just decide to like blow it up. It's like, we're going to, we're going to go for it all on this one. And then, you know, plans also is for a major label record is just remarkably sad. Um, it's like the record where like ever, instead of like, you know, using your major label budget to like, you know, blow it all on whatever trappings of rock stardom. It's like, they just got like made a really, really expensive sounding sad record. And I thought that was so, um, so and also it's like one of the best albums to listen to in the fall um, so and when it came out in like late August in Georgia I mean I want to make a case for Death Cab for Cutie but really if I'm talking about that I'm really just talking about my own life and like the, the circumstances that brought each of them into my own life because like you know when Transatlanticism came out I had moved to a new city and I was like always visiting like my friends in other cities in which I so like when you play that title track, I mean, it's like you're running across a wheat field, like, you know, about to like embrace somebody. I mean, it's like super duper corny, but like Ben just knows how to hit that, like hit that spot. And I think if Death Cab were a new band, they would still do that as well. There's a lot of it me type moments that go on. So um, so the new where, record. Oh, I don't mean to cut you. So uh, uh, were you still emoting about your history with no, Death Cab for Cutie? I didn't mean you know to cut what? you off. No, you better than you do cut me off. But the new record... Because um, I hear this new record is like a return to form. Wait, wait, oh, Derek, you got something. I just wanted to interject. One, I, I ride hard for Death Cab for Cutie, so I'm totally feeling everything Ian's saying. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, the OC, you know, they used to put out commercially those mixes... Uh, and the second OC mix featured both Death yes. Cab and Interpol. So okay. See, I, I'm not besmirching there Death Cab yeah. for uh, the OC connection. I just want to make that yeah. clear. And uh, But that it's a good stylistic connection here for putting them in this podcast. This is like our own OC playlist uh, episode. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I, I'm hearing from Death Cab partisans that the new uh. record is like a return to form. Like, Are you of that opinion? Um, it's a return to form in the sense that like the last two records, Codes and Keys and um, Kintsugi, were uh, I, I think what you would what we saw with Ben Gibbard was kind of a, a an intent to pay from what they were before. Like Kintsugi, particularly, you know, they uh, Chris Walla left their longtime producer who produced every record prior to that one. He left the band during the recording. They had brought this guy called I mean. Talk like what a great name for like the, an, a super alternative rock producer called Rich Costi. Yes. I mean, like what a great what a great name. But, <laughs> but at that point, they kind of transitioned into more um, of a band that you know would be on K Rock. Um, you especially Kintsugi, there was more like an arena rock sort of uh, thing going on with them, where it would not be uh, so bizarre to hear them along like played alongside Imagine Dragons or bands like that. And this new record brings it more towards the kind of smaller or sadder of Death Cab for Cutie. Um, no one will ever confuse it with like uh, the photo album because the, like the production is so pristine um, and slick, but you know, there, the, the songs that are, um, the songs that do get that death cap fixed do sort of bring it back to that. But the th- thing about Ben Gibbard and this, with this, this is what distinguishes them from Interpol is that 
I very much believe that Paul Banks is the guy on Interpol records. Like there isn't like I do think that like Paul Banks's heart is into it and the life he talks about on Interpol it like is the Paul Banks you would like to expect. And I think that comes across in interviews and things like that. With Death Cab now, um I just Ben has really turned his life around in a lot of ways. Um you know, he got married again. Uh, he's been sober, as far as I know, for a very long time. And him and the new replacement for Chris Wall like to do marathons. And when, you, when, when, when Ben sings these very sad songs that are reminiscent of Old Death Cab, he is kind of playing a character. Um, and even if he was playing a character on Old Death Cab albums, it was like easy to imagine that person being similar to, to Ben Gibbard. You would imagine he dressed or looked or whatever or just talked like Ben Gibber but now it's it's more just it's more when you listen to Death Cab for Cutie not for an emotional experience but like for the craft you yeah. know he's playing a role and it's I think he'll tell you just as much as like this isn't as divinely or personally inspired as the past Death Cab albums like you do, anytime I hear a new Death Cab for Cutie song isn't drawn from Ben Gibbard's personal experience. Like he's almost trying to guess at what a Death Cab for Cutie fan might want to hear, you know? Right. So I'm very impressed by the depth of your knowledge <laughs> and uh, passion here for Death Cab. You're clearly just speaking from a personal point of love. You've, you've, you've lived with this band for a long time. They, they, they've clearly meant something to you. I can tell Derek is invested in this band as well. And I'm very impressed by that. And uh, I'm impressed by how this band clearly is one of those bands that people, they take into their heart and it means something to them. They care about the albums. They will argue about which albums are the best. They will talk about song lyrics being reflections of their lives. Um, this is my take on the new record. It's aight. Yeah. It's, it's aight. It's pretty good. Uh, you know, it, not to invoke U2 again, but the, sonically this reminds me of like a 2000s U2 record. Like it's very kind of keyboard heavy. The guitars are kind of muted. It's melodic. It sounds kind of gauzy. It is, for lack of a better term, very much an easy listening, kind of middle-aged sounding indie rock record. And I don't say any of those things to knock the record. I just feel like that's what it sounds like to me. And if you drop this album, as well as any other Deck Cab album, like onto my playlist and I just listen to it randomly, I would never have guessed that people love this band so much. I don't really see what is special about this band or what moves people so much they seem utterly average to me and i am willing to admit that i am missing something there but you know because i was investigating their back catalog getting ready to talk to you and uh it's fine you know i don't dislike it but i don't it, it does not inspire passion in me at all whatsoever so well i I, I think, well, on, on which is the kind level, of a weird like thing to say after, I, you know, because I'm talking about Interpol. You could very easily say, well, Interpol, why are they better? And I don't know why. I think Turn on the Bright Lights is a record that um, is a great record and it meant something to me at a time in my life. I don't know if it's purely about personal experience in this regard. Um, I would say that Interpol maybe has like more of a groove oriented thing to them. I think as a band, they're more dynamic to hear play live even if they are sort of narrower sonically well i'll um, say this about death cab death cab is not a live experience <laughs> like <laughs> i mean i love like i've seen it, it's like oh cool you get to hear your favorite songs but it's like they are not a, i mean a, a lot of that is a testament to like chris wallace production um right i mean they are not they are an inessential live band and you know what that's fine um like I, I don't rely like I don't rely on Death Cab for the same things I, you know, want out of Interpol. I would say though that if, you know, the new record it does it's okay. Like if I can't think of something to listen to for thirty minutes, yeah, I'll throw that on. Gives me a couple Death Cap songs, great. Glad they're still going, you know. Um but I mean I think we are like as far as being average, I I think Death Cab, even if you're um not a fan of what it is they bring to the table. I think that when you look back on it, there's something so distinct about what they do. It's like, they're so like Ben's voice and the lyric, like they're so immediately identifiable that it's, you know, you can just say like, okay, well, Death Cab clearly created their own sonic space that, um, it's easy to see why other people, it might've meant something to them. Like they just developed, 
a complete aesthetic over time that has evolved. And yeah, I could see why people would absolutely not be down with it at all because it does speak to a certain um, early early 2000s point of view, be it the OC. And by the way, if you're going to make a Cohen joke, Michael Cohen, like, come on, man, Seth, we've been talking about the OC. Make a Seth Cohen joke, yeah, man. Make, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, <laughs> I wasn't an OC watcher because that's not that's not a reference that is immediate to me. So, But I will remember that for the future. And again, yeah. regarding Death Cab, you know, I'm I'm totally willing to admit that I'm missing the point or, or I'm missing out, um, but I, I just don't see it. I, I I do not see the I don't do not see the specialness there. But I acknowledge that it means a lot to other people, and that I am missing out because I'm not hearing what other people are hearing. So I don't I don't wish heartbreak on you, but <laughs> like I mean, maybe one day when. You know, when 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 it all goes down and like you're back in that like early twenties mindset, you're gonna listen. You're gonna listen to uh, we have the facts and we're voting yes, and you're just gonna be like, you know what? Shit, it was just sometimes just bands that could mean something to you, you just don't hit you at the right time. Somehow I feel like I have enough sad bastard indie rock in my life that <laughs> that probably won't happen. But you know, who knows? I don't leave. You know, life is uh, life is crazy. That could happen at some point. I can only conclude that you don't know real pain. Oh man. <laughs> It's it's possible because if you know real pain, no, um, <laughs> the dulcet tones of pain, pain on these. It's like, very you know it's very comforting death, sounding pain on these like records. Real trivia shit. These are not very ravaged sounding records, I have to say. But anyway, let's move on. Okay, we're going to get back to you in a minute, but before we do, I want to tell you about another one of our sponsors for this week's episode. It is our friends at Blue Apron. Now, Blue Apron they deliver farm fresh ingredients and step by step recipes to your door. It's their mission to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, and they achieve this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Now, uh, if you're like me, you know, you have a family at home to, to feed every night, and sometimes it can get really hard at the end of a long day to, to come up with something you're not just throwing in the microwave. That's when Blue Apron really comes in handy, because they bring you the stuff to your door that you can use to make really cool stuff, like chicken with barbecue sauce and juicy hamburgers and just things that you'd order in a restaurant and pay a lot of money for, but you're getting them at your house and it's healthier and it's cheaper and it's so yummy. To entice you guys to check out Blue Apron, I'm encouraging you to check out this week's menu where you can get your first three meals for free if you go to blueapron.com celebration. Again, check out the menu, pick out your first three meals for free, and you're going to help the podcast. So again, just go to blueapron.com celebration and get those three free meals. That's Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We've talked about two legacy bands here. Let's talk about two young up-and-comers here. Let's let's talk about the future here. Uh, one of the most acclaimed indie rock records of the year is Be the Cowboy by Mitski. It's her fifth record. And uh, you may know Mitski. Uh, you probably first heard about her in, in 2014. She put out Bury Me at Makeout Creek. That was her breakthrough record. And it was a little bit different than how she sounds now. It's more of like a punk emo sounding record, very hissy and noisy sounding record. Two years after that, she put out Puberty 2, which was, uh, if, if Makeout at Breakout Creek was like the, Bury Me at Makeout Creek, if that was like the breakthrough on like, you know, indie music sites, Puberty 2 is where she broke through on like sort of big mainstream media sites. That's where everyone started talking about Mitski. It's an excellent record, very diverse sounding record. Uh, it's where she first started embracing more pop music, although it was kind of a midpoint between pop and, and again, some of the more kind of punk rock influences that she had on the previous album. Now she's put out Be the Cowboy, and on this record, she's kind of leaving the noisy stuff completely behind. The hissy high end of Bury Me at Makeout Creek has been replaced by a much lusher sound, much more bottom end. You know, it's interesting because she's still working with the same producer that she's always worked with, this guy named Patrick Highland. Uh, but they've really evolved to this sort of, you know, polymath pop sound. There's pop songs, there's disco songs, there's folky songs, there's sort of torch, torchy ballad type songs on Be the Cowboy. Uh, for me, uh, and I just want to say, if I haven't made it clear, I really love this record. I think it's definitely one of the best indie rock records of the year. And one of the things that really impresses me about this album is the economy of Mitski's songwriting, that she is able to basically, usually in the space of about two, two and a half minutes, tell an interesting narrative, deliver 
two or three really great hooks, and then she's out of there. And the album, I think, has about 14 songs or so, and it's in and out in about a half hour. And yet there's a lot of musical information on the record. There's lots to sink your teeth into. Uh, there's lots to explore, and yet, it, but, but because of the economy, it never overstays its welcome. It's a very brisk, fun-sounding record. Um, so I really love this record. I'm, I'm thinking you're on the same page with this, right? Like you love the Mitski record as well. I mean, you've written about her in the past. I mean, you, you reviewed Bury Me at Makeout Creek for Pitchfork. So you've been, <laughs> that's how you know it was emo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was in her emo days. She was not getting best new music back then. I don't think, Yeah. <laughs> but now, but now she's owning the best new music category. Cause she's kind of moved yeah. out of that, that category. Um, but you know, you've, you've, you've seen the evolution that she's gone through. Like, how do you feel about the new record? Um, you know, the, the new record, um, I, I'm, I'm at a point with Mitski where, um, like she's just got the juice, right. As far as like indie rock or whatever, like she's at a point and certain bands or acts reach a certain level, um, when they're very much in their imperial phase where you just, I cannot picture what a bad Mitski record would even sound like. And to me that like, I mean that that maybe that's what keeps me from like completely like being over the moon about it. But I mean, when you listen, when I listen to this, like everything you've mentioned, like things like like all these like dry ideas about like craft and th- like it just becomes exciting in her hands because um, in some ways it, there it is still rooted in an indie sensibility, maybe not like punk or emo or whatever, but it's not like say it's not like an indie pop record the way something like you know carly ray jepson or like lord might be it's still kind of rooted in a more rock sort of idea i think you're right that the economy of this record really makes it easy to revisit which is very important because there are a lot of like really great records that have come out this year uh, and years past that are just these totemic monolithic things where you got to like clear off, you know, you got to be like done with things to like listen to it. And Nitsky's new record works on, you know, it can be, you can just throw it on the background, but you can also like really give it a deep listen and whatever way you interact with it, it, uh, provide it, you know, it gives. Um, and it, it does remind me in the past, like how Pixies records would be, you know, where they were, they, the songs were like super short, but they weren't filler ever. Every song on this record has like an intentionality behind it where um, it just it just comes through with such clarity and such purpose that um, it's really like you just kind of have to like be wowed at, um, you know, what's happening here. And also it just it feels very 2018 in a way that other, um, you know, other albums that I've heard this year really don't. I mean, I mean, I think there's something thoroughly modern about it as well. Yeah, but um, but it's I, modern, I think. I think it just appeals to all bases. Right. I mean, I was just going to say, I, I think you're right, but it's, it's modern in, in a sonic sense, in a musical sense. It's not kind of capitalizing on the standard narratives that you see with a lot of, you know, sort of critically acclaimed indie rock. And, and that's one thing, like you were talking before about, it's hard to imagine like a bad Mitski record. I think you mean it's hard to imagine like a Mitski record that wouldn't get great reviews because she's certainly <laughs> like a critical darling right now. But I think to her credit, she's not catering to a lot of the sort of standard things that people do when they're trying to get good reviews. There's no sort of obvious Trump angle with this record. There's no sort of, she's not writing about, she's not writing the sort of standard narratives that people use. Like when, like when publicists send you a record and they want to use the word empowerment in uh, an email, you know, and, and empowerment in sort of like a marketing sense, not like in a sort of organic sense, you know, knowing that like music critics are going to put that in a headline and that's going to be catnip for them. You know, she's mm-hmm. not writing, I mean, I mean, you can ascertain political content from any music that you want, but I, she's definitely writing from a very sort of individual point of view. And she's writing mm-hmm. songs as a person who experiences sort of the full spectrum of the human experience. You know, like she's not writing songs in order to be a role model. You know, and she's talked about this in interviews, and I think it's admirable for her to talk about that, especially since you see a lot of artists kind of go the other way where they lean into that and it can sometimes overwhelm the art a little bit. Um, I feel like Bitsky is sort of like a, a music or an art person first and she's about sort of the aesthetics of 
how this record sounds, you know, because again, there's a great variety of just sort of sonic fun to get into on this record, like the song Nobody, how that starts mm. as this sort of indie rock sounding song and then it explodes into this joyous disco song by the end. Just kind of reveling in the joy of the sound of the record, I think, is what a lot of the appeal of Be the, of Be the Cowboy is. So it is a critically acclaimed record, but it's not the sort of standard issue critically acclaimed record maybe that you would see in a lot of other places in, in 2018. Well, I'll speak to that. I'll speak to that in the sense of like Mitski has been, I, I think with every um, artist, there is the component of like how they operate in social space. Like, um, you know what they say on Twitter, like how they come across in interviews and like, no. And I don't think it's like, something like i don't think there's like a cynicism about it but like mitski is just like when you watch her do interviews it's like phenomenal to see someone who like like i think gets it like she's the change a lot of people want to see in the world in the sense of like she understands that like there is a moral component to music but it's not like there has to be like i think she said in gq it's like musicians can't be politicians you know it's like there has to be space for you know, fuck ups and like angry people to a certain degree. And I think that she, um, she doesn't try to be like anybody's hero. Uh, but at the same time, that aspect makes her so much more of a likable person. Like, I just think she comes across as so thoughtful and genuine and not in a way where she, I mean, she like knows she, she's, she kind of knows how the narrative, but like, isn't trying to feed it. And, I mean, you know, I think I think she just comes across in a way that it comes across as like very genuine and what, you know, it, not in the same way of like when you see like, I don't know, like pop artists like, you know, like Katy Perry, for example, like people who's like who's or like Arcade Fire, who just like completely tanked their completely tanked their album rollout because they wanted to like, you know, be one step ahead of the narrative. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I don't I think with Mitski, it's like, you know, her her work is political in the sense of like being someone who just as a matter of fact, isn't like the standard white guy um, that is for so long been like the indie rock uh, default. Um, I think she also comes across the people and, you know, like, I mean, her, her breakout album was a, was a Simpsons reference. And I think even on like the new album, uh, the self doubt um, comes across um, just like wanting someone to remember her name after the show, like, and being someone who in her interview, she's kind of expressed like being, you know, kind of like a gifted kid. Um, and wondering like, uh, if they're ever going to live up to the expectations they have for themselves or society does. And, you know, that might be more so than like anything like political, like the one thing a lot of younger people are like really grappling with right now. It's like, will we ever, and it's also an internal thing as well. It's like, will we ever, be live up to the potential and it's it comes across and the fact and i think that's like almost the most amazing thing about this record is that she comes across as like a genuine underdog well maybe not an underdog but like someone who can genuinely express this self-doubt even though she's like the most consensusly beloved artist maybe of like 2018 right now um and so it you know it, it it really makes her someone that's very easy to root for which i think is uh, you know, for better or worse, inextricable from the process of evaluating music. Yeah, I mean, again, I just get back to the idea of like the cult of personality, which sort of subsumes like a lot of mm-hmm. what we talk about with music. I mean, there is the paradox with with Mitski, I think, where, you know, when she talks in interviews, you get the sense that she does not want to be put in a box. She doesn't want to be defined. And that translates to her mm-hmm. music in that it's hard to classify exactly what she's doing. I think even calling it indie rock sometimes isn't totally indicative of what she's doing on this record. You know, nah. she, she wants the space to be an artist where she can kind of do what she wants, explore different areas. And, and again, I, I just find myself sort of reveling in the aesthetics of this record. The, 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 yeah. just, it's a great sounding record, There's a, but it's not sort of overtly great sounding. It's not like overly slick. Like you said, it has, I think, uh, there's an element of pop music on this record, but it, it, I, I feel like the indie rock or the indie feeling is still sort of at the core of it. You know, there, it's kind of a perfect balance between taking some things from pop and some things from indie and, and putting it together in a way that feels really organic and, and mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, but I, again, you know, she, I, I feel like she 
goes out of her way to kind of avoid being defined in a certain way, but then again, but then in doing that, that becomes part of her persona, and that kind of feeds into the cult of personality yeah. that people have with her. So it's like she avoids it, but then I think she's able to use it in a way that's really smart, where it feeds more into her art maybe than than sort of overwhelm it, like with like the way it does with a lot of other people. So she's a very smart person, great artist, great musician. Mitski be the cowboy. It's a great record. Let's get to the last album we're going to be talking about, and this is a big album in Ian Cohen world, and a big <laughs> album in my world too. This is another album I think that we would both put among the very best indie rock records of the year. This is probably your number one indie rock record of the year, if, if, right? I mean, because we're talking about it's near, not even close. Near My God by Foxing. This record came out. I think it was. Was it August third, early August? August tenth. I August believe 10th. it was August tenth. And we both wrote about it. We both interviewed a couple of people in the band. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've 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 both kind of dug in deep with this record, and it, it it it's one of those albums. You know, we were talking about the economy of of the Mitski record. In a way, Nearer My God is the opposite of that. This album is like the multi-course banquet meal of indie rock records. Uh, sonically, a lot going on. A lot of experimentation, adventurousness, uh, but it's a it, it's an exciting, thrilling listen. It, it's the kind of record where a band they set out to make something great. In, I think both of our interviews, the band members talked about Radiohead being an example for them, and this being compared by the band members themselves to like their OK computer, <laughs> you know, like it's kind of you know the the big sort of operatic you know, widescreen rock record. Um, and if you're into that kind of thing, I mean, it seems like records like that don't come along all that much. So it's really exciting when a record like that does come along and, and the band is able to pull it off. For you, like, what is it about this record? You said this is far and away your number one album of the year so far. Why is that the case? With Radiohead, like, I mean, I think the, I don't know, the the gold standard for accessible yet artsy rock music i don't like indie like they were never indie rock they were never on any label but like nonetheless i think they're kind of a for guitar based music like radiohead being that sort of epitome of you know challenging accessible art rock for lack of a better term it's you don't see too many bands actually going for that anymore i think that there's and there can be a number of reasons for this. You know, for one, there just, I mean, there just isn't the money to do it. Like you need money to make a great sounding record like this, even okay. Computer. I mean, they were at like Jane Seymour's castle or something like that. Um, <laughs> hey, by the way, and, should, we, should we just give a, a, some basic info on, on, on Foxing quick? You know, they're banned from, from St. Yeah, Louis. That, this, that's is, th- this is the, like their third um, record. They're like associated with the punk and emo scene. You know, they, they put out their first record. What was that? In like 2000, like, 12 2013 uh, what, yeah so what was the record called okay so the first record was called the albatross and that was uh released in 2013 it was one of the more um it was one of the more distinctive and challenging records to evolve from like that first wave of not the first wave but like when emo revival became like a term Foxing emerged as like one of the more challenging and distinctive bands like they were putting in some things on that first record that were like some of it sounded like, you know, Sufjan Stevens, other parts sounded like kind of avant R&B, but they also had, it was just very ambitious and in some ways a little bit grating, in a, like just because of like the vocals and like the kind of thinness of the sound. And then they made Dealer in 2015, which was a much more, like it was produced by Matt Bales, who like works with bands like, like Isis and like, you know, very post metal. Uh, and it was very quiet and kind of, very coherent but like not very loud and it kind of turned off some people uh because they were used to that very cathartic sound that uh that uh foxing had on the first record and the thing about foxing is despite like what they sounded like on the record um they were always the best live band of that ilk um as much as i love uh, you know, all those bands that come from that wave, you know, Hotel Year World is a beautiful place. I mean, if you catch those bands on the wrong night, like it can be a not particularly compelling live experience. Like and I think that's what's exciting about it. I've seen very transcendent live shows from them. I've seen shows where they're just like, nope, crowd's not into it. They're not feeling it. No 
matter what time, no matter when I saw Foxing, whether it was a headline show or like the third opening act for Manchester Orchestra or playing with any of those bands, like they always killed it. And that was the thing that came into this record where it's like, they're so good live. How do they capture that on record? And I think with this one, they're just like, yeah, we don't care anymore. We're just going to like, <laughs> they tried to recreate the live show, but then they just said, you know what? We're just going to put everything we want to do on this one. We're going to put the bagpipes in. We're going to make the nine minute song. We're going to get Chris Walla to just like put all these layers and textures. And, um, and it really stood, it stands out to me because I think a lot of momentum from that whole scene has just been really, um, there's not a lot of momentum from that scene anymore. I mean, I think at the end of 2006, you know, at the end of like the hotel year hasn't made a record in a while. The world is like a lot of the band members have left. They're in a bit disarray right now. You know, Pine Grove has their whole scandal, this thing going on brand new. I mean, there's just that there isn't a lot of momentum from that scene. And like Foxing are somewhat of like a last band standing from that early wave. And, you know, it had been a while since that scene had produced a record so clearly ambitious and, you know, confounding of ideas about what indie rock or emo really is. And I think that's why I, it came across, at, you know, it's been three years since they made a record, too. So it's just been a long time since this sort of record has emerged from this scene, which is why it's taken so many people in the scene aback and why it took it surprised so many people who might not have heard them before. Yeah, that I, makes any sense. I mean, my sense with this album, because it sonically offers so much more, I think, than a lot of bands from you know sort of the punk emo world, where yeah. you know still you're in a situation where you know even like the the really good bands from that from that scene, you know, they're not making you know prime time records necessarily you know they, they tend to make records that seem to have that sort of basement show aesthetic you know and that's not just true in that scene but you know a lot of indie rock is kind of like that and absolutely and, and the foxing record uh whether you love it or hate it it is a, it's shooting for something uh a kind of grandiosity that you know as you said before it, it kind of only existed when bands had like million dollar budgets to make records i mean i guess we've we've reached a point now with with recording technology where if you're smart and you spend a lot of time that you can make a record like this for you know a fraction of the cost what it would have cost in the 90s or whatever um it's been interesting to see because I feel like this album has had more of an impact maybe than a lot of records from that scene. I see more people talking about it. It seems like there's more interest in Foxing. I mean, there's certainly been a good amount of press coverage, you know, and you and I have both tried to gin up <laughs> our own amount of hype uh, for this album, but you know, other outlets as well have been talking about it. Um, I don't know what this means for, for Foxing moving forward, but I mean, my sense is that, the band has achieved to a degree what they set out to do with this album. Well, I think what they set out to do, and I mean, I'm, I, I've interviewed just about all the bands from this scene. And for the most part, all of them are trying in some way to navigate that huge space that exi that exists between like the thing about like emo now pretty much refers to like any sort of band that plays like emotional guitar music that exists outside of this like conglomerate of labels and PR companies that like for the most part are responsible for stocking festivals and like getting man's <laughs> best new music and whatever. And it's like a lot of them wonder, it's like, dude, how do like we're indie rock? How do we like, how do we get to play, you know, uh, Coachella like how do we get to like tour with uh, Mitski or whatever yeah, like those sort of things and um, I think with them uh, like this record as well as like Harmlessness and Goodness like or Never Hung Over Again by Joyce Manor they all almost intentionally try to make that leap from this sort of emo world where the the, the irony is they, they, these guys like turn on you if like you sound less emo and then they're trying to get to this space where they can be taken seriously as like an indie rock band. And they, you know, they're seeing maybe a scance in that world as well because they come from that emo scene. And it's, 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 I can't see any band, like I haven't seen too many bands actually navigate it with maybe the exception of like 
JSOM, she started out on top shelf and now she's, you know, in that indie mainstream world. But, um, you know, their intention, I think, for this one is to, um, and I think Hotelier said this with goodness as well, is to be taken seriously as like art rock um, and to get in the same, um, you know, spoken in the same terms as like maybe TV on the radio, which a lot of people have brought up. Or that rather than saying, oh, you'll be surprised. They don't sound like Taking Back Sunday. Um, <laughs> right. And no, like even 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 to this day, like I've read the like some reviews of like Near My God where it's like, I know, know it's emo, but like here's the thing, kids. It doesn't sound like My Chemical Romance or actually, I mean, that's not, not necessarily true. I mean, like the Black Parade is like still like one of those big time ambitious records. But um, I think with this, like. And, and the one thing that makes this record so emotionally resonant for me, um, they put it right in there where they're like, man, we kind of want to be big. I mean, the title track, maybe not big, but it's like get some approval for doing this stuff. Like because you play like the, like a band like Fox and like show after show after show every night. They wrote about this on Dealer as well, where it's like, is this worth it? You know, like, is this worth like my 20s and like not having any stability and um, be like and not making any money and so forth? And, you know, like we're creating great art and it's rewarding. But especially now in this in the current state of things where it's much harder for a band to like be financially sustainable, it's like, I mean, I don't think they did it in a cynical way where they're trying to like be on a car commercial. But like there's just such this yearning for um, for recognition and for validation and, uh, but in a way that like it to me is like relatable. I mean, even when I write about this stuff, it's like you write about emo bands and it's like, you don't get the same sort of like, you know, praise on Twitter about like, you know, like this groundbreaking work. It's like, for the most part, a lot of this stuff is done in obscurity and read by like a very small number of people. And, Near my God, um, it just it has this ambition, this like uh, this desire to you know just transcend the mundanity of life that I think speaks across all you know it's like in the same way that like Mitski has a, a a kind of I like a kind of persona that's relatable. Um, maybe Fox's is a little more like theirs is a little more embarrassing and like you know adolescent in the same way if Death Cab is like just being, I don't know, confused by your place in the world and like wondering, you know, if, if there really is more out there for you. And I think they just put it all on a rec all on a record that, um, just demands to be noticed in a way that I think is so rare in indie rock these days, you know, like people who even who criticize it say, Oh, it sounds like Portugal man or passion pit or whatever. It's like, yeah, but those are popular bands. It's like, you know, why is that objectively a worse thing than like being some band that wants to sound like the 50 billionth band to sound like dinosaur junior or like, right. You know, built a spill or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm into it, man. I think it's a great record. <laughs> I think it's finding an audience and you know, we're not doing it for the Twitter likes. We're doing it for the long-term glory, man. We're doing it for the 10 <laughs> years from now. That's what I'm talking about. So we, yeah. we talk, So to recap here, we talked about Interpol. I'm yay. You're kind of leaning towards nay. Death Cat for Cutie, you're yay. I'm leaning towards well, nay. I think I'm more towards the middle on both. Well, you know, we're, we're being reductive here. You know, we're being somewhat reductive. Mitski, we're both yay. And Foxing were both yeah. yay. So like on the new people, we're we're, we're both Foxing, on the I'm same like, page. Fuck yeah. You're a fuck yeah on Foxing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'll give him a fuck yeah too. I'll give a fuck yeah on Mitski too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Interpol, I'll give a yeah. And uh, and uh, Death Cab, I'm like, oh, it's fine. So uh, <laughs> that's uh, I think that's uh, that's the reductive uh, conclusions on those records. Ian, it's always a pleasure talking to you. I'm sure we'll be back again. Yes. Next time there's like four so, fun records to talk about. So uh, thank you again, dude. We will we'll talk to you again soon. All right, man. Later. All right, take care. All right, that was me and Ian getting into it. Always fun. Always fun to see Ian get worked up about emo. <laughs> you know, getting worked up about Death Cat for Cutie and, and about foxing. I admire his passion. He's storming the gates for emo. 
He's on that wall for all you emo kids out there. Got to give a shout out, as always, to Derek Madden, the man who makes it happen. Thank you, Derek. Got to give a shout out to Josh Copperman, the man who wrote our theme song. Thank you, Josh. And of course, thank you to all of our Celebration Rock listeners. Without you, we would not have a show. So thank you for your support. Thank you for talking about us on social media and for leaving nice reviews of us on iTunes. I read all of your reviews and all of the nice ones make me feel really good. And all of the bad ones make me feel really sad. But fortunately, they're mostly good. So that's, <laughs> that's really great. Guys, thank you again for checking us out. We will be back with more Celebration Rock next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. 